0: I am often a student of the obvious and because I can be quite literal, that's a dangerous combination. Whenever I lose something and someone trying to be helpful says, well, where did you see it last? I want to turn and say, if I knew that it wouldn't be lost, I'd go get it. But actually the question isn't that bad. You see, if I'd been more careful and remembered where I put it, it wouldn't be lost. And if I would slow down and take a deep breath and just let my mind clear a little bit, I probably could remember where I saw it last and then I could go find it. A few years ago, one of our ladies at Bible study couldn't find the keys to her car after class, and she looked through her purse. We looked, didn't see it in the ignition, didn't see it on the floor or in the seat, but she remembered getting in the trunk before she came into Bible class. So we assumed that's where they're at. Called AAA, about a half hour later, they showed up, they opened up the vehicle, and we popped the lid, and sure enough, we opened up the trunk, and nope, keys aren't there. They're not in the trunk. They're not in the ignition. They're not on the floor. They're not wedged in the seat. They're nowhere in the car. Now, the administrative assistant says, would you mind if I looked in your purse? She says, well, I already looked there. Jerry said, you know, would you mind? And she said, fine, go ahead. And so Jerry starts pawing around, and next thing you know, she opens up one of those little outside compartments, and sure enough, there's the keys. And she said, I thought you said you looked in your purse. And the lady said, I never, ever put them there. Why would I look there? Because I knew they weren't there. And yet, there they were. You know during my life I've lost a few thousand things in plain sight usually because I never ever put them there so why would I look there because I know they're not there because that's not where I put things and yet that's where they are. You know I've learned that when I'm in a hurry when I'm flustered when I'm under pressure I can't even find things that are in plain sight because I lack the clarity of mind that I need for situational awareness. That leads us to Honest Thomas. Oh, you remember, I'm not a big fan of calling him Doubting Thomas, because all the apostles were doubting. Yeah, just because he put all of his cards on the table and was willing to speak what was on his heart, I, I, think I need to honor him for that and say, at least he was being honest about it. If anything, Thomas is guilty of being late to the party. I don't know why Thomas wasn't there when Jesus showed up and met with all the other apostles. Whether he was depressed, whether he couldn't even get out of bed because he was so lost, maybe he had a previous engagement. But you know what? He finally shows up. He gets out of bed, and all the other apostles are saying, you should have been here. Jesus showed up. Oh man, you missed it. It..." And Thomas is feeling terrible, but he's not quite ready to accept it yet. And I think there's an important theological reason for his doubt. You see, when Jesus walked into that locked room, the very first thing that he said, was peace be unto you. Now notice, they thought he was gone. They weren't expecting him. They'd locked the door. And yet he walks in, and the first thing he says is, peace be unto you. If you've ever been in a place where uncertainty reigned, pain, hurt, and darkness were everywhere, where there was no sign of light anywhere, what did you want? And what did you need more than anything else? If you were waiting for the phone call from the doctor or had to give you a report card with not so good grades to your parents, or you came home to a note on the fridge telling you that the relationship was over, or if your bank account was empty and yet you still got a stack of bills on the counter, or if you hadn't heard from your child in months, what did you want? What did you need? The New York Times asked their readers to respond to the following statement. They said, as we look ahead to life after the pandemic, many people are wondering what will be different in our lives. Will we go back to living the way we did before? And what if we do? Do we risk losing something we've learned from one long and terrifying year? You know the answers they published? They were deeply personal, pointed, and very telling. For some, it was obvious the pandemic hadn't affected them all that much. And they couldn't wait to go back to the way things were. And they didn't plan on making any changes. For others, they'd lost pretty much everything, especially their peace of mind. And they were afraid to take a step in any direction. And for many, their answer was far more philosophical than practical. Wondering made me wonder where they were going to be in a year from now, because it sounds like they hadn't come up with any possible steps. Have you thought about what's next? Uh, Not just because COVID appears to be coming closer to the end, because that's just uh, the latest excuse, the latest catalyst. Have you thought about what's next? Because I got to be honest, life tomorrow is going to be different than today or any of the days before it. You see, whether you wanted something new or not, something new's coming. Because tomorrow is the product of all the decisions that we have made today and all the days before it. Not even just our decisions, the decisions that anybody made. And a lot of the things that impact our tomorrows, let's face it, out of our hands. But that should not keep us from dreaming dreams or making plans because there is enough of our tomorrows that are within our control that we can't just leave it to chance. Victor Hugo in Les Miserables said, There is nothing like a dream to create the future. And Langston Hughes said, Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. He still reminded us that we were made to fly. We were made to live forever, and we can't settle for anything less. I always feel bad for the person in the group who didn't experience what everybody else at the table experienced. Because they're all sitting there going, oh, do you remember when they, oh, yes, that was a favorite of mine. But also, do you remember when they, or, oh, it was fantastic. You know what? You haven't lived until you've been there. And the person who doesn't remember any of it because they weren't there suddenly feels like they haven't lived. And it's a very terrible feeling. The disciples had an unexpected up-close and personal experience with the resurrected Jesus. And Thomas, for whatever reason, wasn't there. And now he's feeling left out. Whatever kept him away from the room on that day and at that time, I'm sure he wishes he could go back and fix it. But you can't. And you know what that's like. He wants his own experience with Jesus now. I mean, they told him. He walked in. First thing he did was he showed us his hands, his feet, and his side. <sighs> yeah. You know, it's not enough to live your faith vicariously through someone else. And it's about far more than just knowing that Jesus is alive. You see, think of all the hopes and dreams Thomas had in the thra- last three years as he followed Jesus. All the things that he was thinking that the future were going to be about. And then none of it mattered. It mattered. Because if Jesus is dead, it's over. It's done with. But if Jesus is alive, then there's still hope. What Thomas really wants is what the other disciples have and he doesn't. The peace that assures them there's going to be a tomorrow. That everything's going to be okay. That allows them to know that everything that they've said and done and thought and dreamed was not in vain. You know, the rest of the disciples really were different. Thomas knew it. He saw it. And he wanted what they had. And it was more than just knowing Jesus was alive. You see, the gospel says that after Jesus spoke peace into their lives, he turned and he said, He breathed on them the Holy Spirit. Wow. Something that has been lost over the past years is the difference in the necessity of both justification and sanctification. You see, the two have gotten terribly lost inside each other. We cannot be saved by doing something. Jesus saved us with no cooperation or help on our part. That's justification. It's God's work, plain and simple and only. Sanctification is also God's work, just like justification. It's not about us, although we tend to make it about us, just like we tend to make justification about us, too. You see, in both justification and sanctification, our only power, the only power we have is to say no, to reject God and all of His amazing gifts. If we want to boil all this down to two words, it would be surrender and sacrifice. To be a follower of Jesus is to accept and understand that there are only two trajectories in this life, toward God or away from God. By the way, you're either being drawn toward God by a spirit or you're not. And there is no such thing as station keeping or holding pattern. If you aren't moving toward God, you're moving away, even if you're standing still. Close doesn't count here. To be drawn toward God means surrendering to the reality that God loves you. And by the way, that is not an easy thing. That God loves you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you were born, no matter who your parents are, no matter all those things that seem to matter to the world, none of that matters. God loves you, period. There is no anything beyond that. Now, the reason this is so important is because of the second word, sacrifice. We surrender to the reality that God loves us. And then we get to the sacrifice. You see, there are sacrifices we make because of love. And while there might be a tinge of regret, we wouldn't do it any other way. You see, this type of sacrifice is our gift. It is the price we are willing to pay because we know what's gonna come about because of our sacrifice. Whatever we give up is actually nothing compared with what's gonna take place but such surrender and sacrifice must come from faith. A faith that allows us to see beyond ourselves because God has given us that ability. Let me share a few thoughts from the people of the New York Times article. A woman from Massachusetts said, there was a moment where I walked by my neighbor and asked her how she was doing. She was 82 at the time, and in a sad but very honest way, she told me that she was prepared to die. It wasn't that she didn't love life. I think she was afraid that in this year, Life wouldn't love her back. A man in Illinois said, The pandemic has forced me into the present. It's the meditation I never wanted, but have come to appreciate. That said, last week I kicked a hole in the bathroom door. A woman from Pennsylvania said, I don't think I can go back to a before. I don't think I fit into that life anymore. A woman from Florida said, I don't skip walks with my husband just because I'm tired. A man from Texas said, I no longer have any clear trajectory and I'm learning to make peace with that. What would you say about how you feel right now? Not just about the whole COVID thing, but your life as a whole. What would bring you peace? What would restore your hope? What would allow you to take one step forward? Not so much without fear, but with enough fear being pushed back by the peace in your life that you're not as afraid as you know you probably should be because where you're going is where you need to be. I thought about what I would have done if I was Thomas. I mean, how can you make sure it's really Jesus? Mary didn't recognize him, neither did the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We don't know why, they just didn't. The Bible says he kept the nail holes in his hands feet and the puncture wound from the soldier's spear. But what about all the wounds from the floggings and the beatings and all of the whippings? I mean, if Jesus still had all those gruesome marks, I'm pretty sure everybody's first words would have been, man, you look terrible. You look like you should be dead. And then they probably would have said, oh, you used to be dead. You're Jesus. That's great. Glad to have you back. But they didn't say anything like that. Most people leave their faith at church after worship so that they don't have to worry about losing it. It's going to be right there in their regular pew. No need to look through the cupboards or the drawers. No worries about it getting buried underneath the dirty laundry or that stack of pizza boxes that's ready to be recycled. Yep, and even if they don't make it back to church for a Sunday or two, or even longer, they know it'll be waiting for them right there when they do get back, even if somebody is actually sitting in their pew. You know, the problem is when someone needs their faith at the hospital or in the kitchen or at the neighbor's home or while they're on vacation. And somebody says, well, where did you see it last? And they want to say, well, if I knew that, it wouldn't be lost. But they know better because they know exactly where they left it. And if they want to find it, they know where they're going to have to go back to to get it. You know, one particular quote from that New York Times article that really struck me. There was a moment where I walked by my neighbor and asked her how she was doing. She was 82 at the time, and in a sad but very honest way, she told me that she was prepared to die. It wasn't that she didn't love life. I think she was afraid that in this year, life wouldn't love her back. I see Thomas as that 82-year-old woman. He loves life. He wants to live. He wants to dream and hope. But if Jesus isn't alive, then there's no one to love him back to life. And by the way, was it planned that he wouldn't be there? Did Jesus somehow not love him as much as he loved the other disciples? Was it his fault he missed out, or was it intentional that he missed out? Thomas knows exactly where he left his faith. He left it at the foot of a cross on a hill called the Skull, just outside Jerusalem. He left it there because he thought it was dead, that it was worthless, that it had nothing left to give him. You know, there's been a few times in my life where someone gave me a gift so overwhelming that the only words that I could possibly speak was, really, this this is for me? And there was enough doubt and frailty and overwhelmingness in my words that it was obvious that I was sure that this was a misunderstanding. This could not possibly be real because I don't deserve it. This is too great of a gift, too, too wonderful of a gift to be given to me. And when they said, nope, it's yours, there were no words to describe the feelings running through my mind, my heart, and my soul. I mean, what do you say when someone gives you something that is beyond comprehension? When Jesus held out his hands and pulled up his shirt and told Thomas, go ahead, I imagine Thomas saying, for me, you you really did this for me, Jesus? I mean, I I saw what you went through. You, You really did that for me. The cross and the empty tomb come down to threads of grief, fear, sin, skepticism, and pain that are so overwhelming, we don't know what to always say or do. We long for redemption and restoration, and we're always leaving our faith behind at church or in a grave or a hospital room or a broken relationship or a college class or just on the side of the road on some journey that we took. There are a million reasons to leave our faith behind somewhere. There's just one to hold on to it. The church isn't here to fix all your problems. We are in a social club, babysitting service, dating site, counseling center, or 12-step program. Now, that's not to say that those things don't take place here. And we're thankful that they do. But that's not why we exist. We exist to connect you to Jesus over and over and over again. To bring you into his presence where you can put your finger in the nail holes and ask, so you, you actually did this for me. Where you can experience God's love and his redeeming, restoring presence in your everyday life, so that you began to realize that you don't need to leave your faith here, that actually it's best if you take it out there. Healing from grief, fear, sin, skepticism, and life, that takes time. Learning to take your faith with you and not leave it in the pew, that also takes time. I know that Jesus is everywhere in the universe. There is no place that he is not. But like Thomas, there are times when we need more than someone else's stories, that they saw him, that he's alive. We actually need stories of our own. And that is why there is no better place than a church where we can find a pew and look underneath it for our faith and know that it will be there. And then let the hymns and the prayers wash over us. We can receive Holy Communion, talk with God, not just about God. Listen for his voice as he speaks peace into our life. And then feel his breath upon us. As he breathes the Holy Spirit into us. God is everywhere. But he will let us bury him underneath the dirty laundry and the pizza boxes ready for recycling. He knows we can get lost in our thoughts or get so depressed that we can't even get out of bed. But here is his presence. It's right here, wherever we are. His pursuit of you is relentless. Through the cross, the grave, and back again. You see, there is no place you can go, no place you can leave or bury your faith where he can't find you. And when he does, he will hold out his nail-scarred hands and let you see for yourself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, alleluia and amen.